This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, producer Jason Clark on his new miniseries, The Long Road Home, which premieres on the National Geographic Channel on Tuesday, November 7th at 9 p.m. and continuing every Tuesday night for the next eight weeks. The Long Road Home is based on Martha Raddatz's 2004 best-selling novel about an American military platoon which was ambushed in Baghdad, Iraq in April of 2004. Jason shares with us the 10-year journey in developing The Long Road Home and why he thought the story would be perfect for a miniseries as opposed to a feature-length movie. We'll also learn about the unique production process and the detailed research that went into telling the battlefield story of The Long Road Home as well as the families of the platoon were dealing with the uncertainty of their loved ones' lives thousands of miles away. Jason Clark is also the producer of the hit Fox television series The Orville, starring and created by Seth MacFarlane, as well as Seth MacFarlane's films Ted, Ted 2, and A Million Ways to Die in the West. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at jogroad, Instagram at jogroadproductions, like our Jog Road Productions Facebook page, subscribe to Jog Road Productions on YouTube to see some of our video interviews with Don Cheadle, Hewan McGregor, Greta Gerwig, and many more. And don't forget to subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for a new episode downloaded every week. And please remember to write us a review on the Apple Podcast page for the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join producer Jason Clark as we learn all about the development of his new miniseries, The Long Road Home, which premieres on Tuesday, November 7th at 9 p.m. and will air for the next eight weeks. And you can also check out more on National Geographic On Demand to see a great behind-the-scenes featurette all about the making of The Long Road Home. So when it comes to The Long Road Home, this was uh, a long road even to get it developed. It was 2004 when the book was published. Yeah, uh, that's what, actually when the event happened, March 2004. And then I think it was a year and a half later that Martha published the book. And then we spent, um, Mike Metavoy actually uh, optioned the book from Martha and worked with Miko Alon, who actually wrote the 33 with Mike. They had a future history together. They developed it into a screenplay, and the screenplay was, you know, um, very well received, but it was very difficult to tell this story in a two-hour movie. And I think for that reason, it didn't really launch. Another reason is maybe it was a little too soon after the event. So they had it for seven years. I got involved about two and a half years ago. Uh, Mike asked me to read the book. And I read the book and I said, Mike, this is a miniseries event. You know, this is this needs to be told in multiple hours. You have so many stories here. You have the home front. You have the war front. And in the war front, you have two rescue missions, even a third rescue mission. The guys that are pinned down, that's your main platoon. Uh, and all of the other stories, Command and the rest of it, that are going on. And each one of those stories is harrowing and incredibly compelling. So I think two hours doesn't do it justice. I said to Mike, let's try to do it in exactly as long as the guys were pinned down. So we made an eight-hour miniseries with the hopes that if you actually watch it, that's how long those people were trapped. Yeah, watching the uh, behind-the-scenes featurette that's right now on Nat Geo, it's fascinating to see the detail of the sets of everything that went into even researching the home life of each soldier. Uh, so were you part of that research process going in? Completely. working with writers? Well, you know, we had the benefit of Martha's reports that she'd done on uh, ABC, and she'd done uh, some follow-up reports, and it was after the 10-year anniversary of this actual battle that we uh, started to delve into the eight-hour miniseries and break it. So we had the benefit of the relationships that she had developed over the years with 
these veterans and their families. And um, a lot of them were very reticent about talking about that story for several reasons, all of which were personal to them. And it was very difficult to develop that trust. And Miko Lan, who developed the um, eight-hour miniseries with us, he took a trip very early on in our development of the miniseries to go and meet with some of these families and with some of those veterans. And I can tell you that trip was one of the most meaningful experiences uh, on the show for him. But for me personally, to hear him tell the tales of the people he met and, and how meaningful this was and how dear it was to them, I realized that we had a grave responsibility to tell the story right. And I knew that we had a story that was worth telling because of the humanity at the center of this. I mean, obviously, there's a war and there's the story of the war and you can choose which side you're on, but we don't. We tell the story of the soldiers and these are human beings that were pinned down with a family. And who was that family? They had an interpreter who was an Iraqi interpreter. What was his story? How did he end up there? And the story of people caught in this war. We tell the story a little bit of Muqtad al-Sadr and how he rose to power in Iraq in that time frame. And Martha recognized early that the story we're telling is about a pivot point in history. This was the start of the insurgency. And so the opportunity to tell the story now, I think we had enough distance from it that it was meaningful and powerful. But, um, you know, it, it's, a, um, it's a great responsibility and, and uh, I think that we did, uh, we, we did fair and right by the ladies and gentlemen who were involved in this story for real. Was there anything that you didn't uh, realize going into that research uh, development process beforehand that, you, that were sort of surprised you that came to the surface? Well, one of the things that surprised me was the idea that through the telling of the story uh, and unpacking the trauma that surrounds the story for some of the real veterans of this event and their families, there's healing that can take place. So, you know, you hope that when you're a storyteller that you can do something that's impactful. But to have that kind of impact and to see that take place, that was miraculous. How important was it to be accurate in terms of the the details of what it is to be in Iraq, to be in service? I understand that you had military experts come in as well to work with some of the actors. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, um, as we developed our relationships with the families and the veterans who were involved in this battle, some of them are retired and some of them were willing to come and join us um, as technical advisors. So a gentleman named Aaron Fowler and another gentleman named Eric Borkwin, uh, who plays his character plays prominently throughout the show, they came on board very early in February of um, this year and and really assisted the production in helping to liaise between the production and what happened in a way that we can be honest and truthful as much as possible. I think it was also very powerful for the actors to be surrounded by and meet the veterans that they were playing or that knew the people they were playing. And it was a grave responsibility. Michael Kelly has a wonderful story he talks about where, um, you know, he got together with some of the guys after they, we, we, we put them in a kind of training exercise where they met with our technical advisors, both who were ex uh, army rangers, and they put them through exercises. And at the end of one day of these exercises, they all went out for a beer and ran into some of the veterans who were part of this battle. And Michael Kelly walked into the room and, and somebody said, hey, that's uh, Michael Kelly's playing uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Gary Valesky, who's now a general. And everybody in the room said, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was a real, like, it was like 
you got some big shoes to fill here. Let's see how you do. Uh, needless to say, he's an amazing actor and he killed it. So he was he was brilliant. And I was there when uh, General Valesky actually visited our set at, at Fort Hood and we walked around with him and he told us some stories and he and Michael Kelly walked together and I could tell how proud Michael was to represent um, this person and how happy um, General Valesky was to have this story told. I think it's an important story. of uh, it's, a, it's a cautionary tale. You know, we make these decisions to go to war politically, but these are not easy decisions and should never be political. These are the, the cost is too grave to the countries that we go to and to the people we send there. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the incident that takes place in the story that's the, uh, the center of everything? Yeah, so it uh, was Palm Sunday uh, in 2004, uh, and um, a new division had kind of moved, moved in to take over operations that were considered peacekeeping operations by and large. Um, it, uh, their, their unit had gone to Kuwait and then had driven up from Kuwait to Baghdad, and their job was to patrol a suburb of Baghdad, which was a, uh, an impoverished area. And um, the particular unit that we follow on the day, their job was to actually um, escort some sewage trucks around. And the area had no electricity, no sewage, two and a half million people. It was ravaged. Um, It had been under the thumb of Saddam Hussein for many, many years. And they were discriminated against this particular group uh, in this ghetto. And um, so when Baghdad was liberated when, you know, Saddam Hussein was ousted by the Americans, the hope was things would change. And as we know, it was very complicated. And for them, it didn't really change. So there was an incendiary moment that was brewing. And since we were um, after the, um, after Bush had, uh, I think it was 45 days after Bush said mission accomplished and the war was specifically over and we were in our peacekeeping and rebuilding, Nobody, it had come at the end of one of the most peaceful years in that area in Baghdad. There had been very little um, activity. So these guys really believed they were there for a year of escorting sewage trucks and kind of like not doing soldiers' work. None of them had been fired upon. Very few of them had been fired upon or fired a weapon in combat ever before. They really thought everything was over. It was... It was over. Everything was done. Yes, peacekeeping. So um, they all went that uh, route. And uh, in the transfer, uh, because of the way things had been set up by the government, there wasn't a lot of crossover. So there was not a lot of intel for them. They didn't have their trackers on yet. Things were a little bit um, uh, unprepared for a combat operation. Uh, and that's when a thousand, approximately a thousand Mahdi militia uh, took up weapons and attacked this group of 18 soldiers. One of them was killed instantly or very early in the battle. They made a run for it uh, with RPGs and AK-47s firing down upon them uh, from all directions. Uh, these guys only got so far when two of their uh, Humvees, which were unarmored, they left a lot of their armor back at Fort Hood. So they didn't have armor on this operation. These guys were um, caught. Uh, these two unarmored uh, Humvees were disabled, and they had to make a run for it. And they ran down an alley and found this house. But since they didn't have trackers, it was impossible to find them in this enormous, you know, rabbit warren of ghetto-like suburb of Baghdad, this slum. 
Um, and uh, so they were pinned down trying to use their radios to get rescues. Their antennas had been shot off. There was a lot of uh, issues communicating. But um, they were there for eight and a half hours. And the um, the QRF, which is Quick, uh, Quick Reaction Force, which is who you send in for a rescue, they had given all their ammo back uh, for the tanks and were ready to head out. And they were actually heading to Kuwait when they were told, hang on a second, there's, there's a battle because it was completely unexpected. Uh, so they had to rearm and they were attacked. They went to a police station and were attacked by um, uh, militiamen dressed as policemen. Uh, one of them was killed in this, in this battle. And then for eight and a half hours, rescue missions were mounted out of their forward operating base, which was a um, nearby uh, kind of small encampment where they were. Uh, they sent uh, soldiers out in unarmored vehicles who had volunteered to leave no man behind. They were going to go get this platoon. Three rescue missions, 60 wounded, eight killed. Eight and a half hours later, 18 guys went in. Uh, one of them was gravely wounded, and uh, 17 guys came out alive. So it's an epic story of survival, too. And on the home front, all of this unfolded in real time for uh, the families. And there was no uh, precursor. They'd all said goodbye four days ago to them and said, well, actually, they'd said goodbye slightly more a couple of weeks ago, but they were only in, they'd known that they'd arrived in Baghdad only four days ago. And they were in the assumption that was for a year of uh, escort duties. And as it turns out, that battle started here and lasted for 80 days. And we see them on the show, too. We see what's going on on the home front. and It's equally important to us. What's happening. Yeah. You know, that's I think what was important is that we've seen a lot of these stories, but we never really see the other side. And it's not just the soldiers, but it's the wives and husbands and families and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. They all the kids all of them say goodbye for a year uh, and don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, we didn't make a, a show about the special forces, the highly trained individuals. These are your rank and file military men and women who serve uh, and, and in some cases are serving for a better life, for an opportunity, and in other cases are there to serve their country. Everybody made an individual decision on how they arrive there. And we tell those stories. And in the eight hours, you get to know those guys and you know who they are and why they made the decisions they are. Um, and the same thing happens in the household that we're trapped in. And we see that Iraqi family that has lived under the oppression of being a minority uh, in, in Iraq at the time and, and dealing with the um, you know, subrogation of feeling pushed down by Saddam Hussein's uh, reign and then having this moment where there's an opportunity and to have that opportunity feel uh, they're not going to get a leadership voice in the government of Iraq. Um, and, uh, and all of the programs that they were hoping for, that the, when that evaporated for them, I think it was incendiary. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's an interesting documentary we watched right before we started and a couple of the Mahdi militia men who had worked for, who were fighting for Muqtad al-Sadr, on a roof, and I think it was a Australian interview crew said, "What are you doing?" Like, you know, they asked, they like, and they said, "What do you, what do you dream of?" Like, what's your dream? They were like twenty-year-old, twenty-two-year-old kids, and they were very thoughtful for a moment of silence, and then said, "To have a job." Now, if your dream is to have a job, you're going to fight. 
And that's who these young men and women were up against and didn't know it when they arrived in country. Yeah. I think it's important to understand the perspective of, of their struggle, too. I think that's vital to... Completely. Uh, when you propose that this be an eight-hour miniseries, that must have been challenging in terms of logistically putting that together versus doing a movie. So was there any sort of pushback on that at all? Um, I have to thank our partners, National Geographic. From the moment they heard this, they got it and they wanted it and they understood what it could be. And that's one of those rare moments in when you, you know, I mean, this had been around for a while and I think there was a struggle to get it made early on. And I came in and had the opportunity to be kind of the, uh, the relief pitcher in a weird way. And that was great and kind of conceived the game as, as slightly different. And, and it was such a strong opportunity to do something with Mike Metavoy, who, when he talks about doing things around war, he says, well, I've done, you know, um, Apocalypse Now. So it's a little bit too soon. It, 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 it met some controversy when it, when it first ran. And he said, I did Coming Home, and that met some controversy. And then I did Platoon. He said it was a smash, and it was a critical uh, and a commercial success simultaneously. He said, I I attribute part of that maybe to the timing, that we had some distance from Vietnam. I think that was 86, 87, around there. Uh, Yeah, yeah, was it maybe, was it 84, 86? I don't remember. Do you remember? Somewhere in the late 1980s. But we were past the 70s. Yeah. And this is literally 14 years uh, or so after that battle that this is here. And we needed to get a little distance from Iraq to be able to look back on it in a way that it's not too painful. You know, there's um, um, a, lot of, a, a, a lot of trauma and loss in our experience there. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we should never make these decisions to send men and women abroad to defend the United States of America unless we have um, a clear mission and an understanding of the value of that, but also an understanding of the cost of that. That's important. Now, as a producer on the project, what was your your main attribute in putting this all together, would you say? Well, you know, my background, um, I had kids very early, so I had to keep working. So I learned a lot about production during the, when my kids were young. And so my background is I really understand how to put something like this together. And I realized that we needed to have a game plan. You know, you can't, you can't make an eight-hour miniseries and kind of back into just the creative ideas that you have. And we knew that 50% was the home front and 50% was the war front. But if the war front takes place in the Middle East and the home front takes place in Texas, can we be in two locations with 122 speaking roles? How do we do that? So the enormity of that idea alone was very difficult to try to process, particularly with eight hours that we had to, there's something called cross-boarding where you, where you board uh, scenes from different sort of shooting episodes. Sort episodes simultaneously. Yeah, so way. you shoot the home front sequences together and you shoot the, the, the street battle sequences together and you shoot the house that they're pinned down in together. And you shoot those, those, you kind of find the continuity in that material so you can maximize the resource. If you need to bring in special actors or special equipment, you can get it all done in that time frame. And so there is, a, there is a value of that. But the idea of doing that and then picking up roots and going to Morocco or going to, uh, you know, a real place in North Africa or in the Middle East where we could film uh, and actually control the streets, we kept bumping up against the idea that we can't really do this on a National Geographic kind of schedule and budget that makes sense. It becomes enormous immediately. So I... St- 
we went and visited very early on um, uh, Fort Hood, and Martha had arranged for us to meet uh, General Pete Corelli, who is retired now, but at the time kind of uh, was commanding these forces over there. And he took us around, and he introduced us to a lot. And one of the places he took us to was a training village that was about a 12-acre site where they had actually trained before they deployed on this mission. And we drove around, and as we were driving around, there was this kind of infinite loop of streets that I realized. And since so much of our show takes place driving on streets, I started to look out the window at the buildings and say, well, forget the roof lines. If the roof line's right, what does it look like in, in a lens? What would it look like? And I realized the buildings could work. They were concrete block buildings. They looked like they could be easily converted. I could see the set dressing in my mind's eye, and I was pitching the idea, what if we converted this training village into Iraq? Let's turn this into Sadr City. And so we, we kind of ran with that idea and started to show and tell with Seth Reed, our production designer, the before and after. In fact, in this building right here, the room next door, stores where we did all the preparation for the art department before they left for Texas. And what, what arose is a real opportunity to, that, uh, to, to shoot there if the Army supported us. And because <clears throat> this book had been around a long time, and they were aware of the book and aware of the story, and it was a story that they wanted out there. They wanted this. Uh, I believe they supported it for that reason. And there was a lot of people that needed, whose story they felt was important to tell, the, you know, the people that, that were lost in this battle and also some of the survivors of this battle. So they gave us their support. We, we were able to make an agreement with the Army to uh, work at Fort Hood. We took advantage of this training village. We added about 80 buildings to the site, which already had about 60, 70 buildings. So all of a sudden, we had the largest back lot in North America when it was <laughs> built, all of which was uh, we weren't allowed to actually stick a stake in the ground because this training village may or may not have had live ordnance in the ground because it had been used over years. And the Army said to to go through and clean that up would be, you know, just impossible. So literally every building was weighed down with big water jugs. And we put these buildings up and um, built this kind of Iraq painstakingly identifying buildings from photographs that uh, the troops had brought back or that Martha had gone and visited a few days after this event. Martha went and actually visited the site and the house. And we took all of that and recreated it painstakingly so much so that when veterans who were there visited us, they said that, you know, uh, you could see an emotional reaction to them. Um, we had a Gold Star mom come to the set who lost her son in this battle. And, and we said, are you sure you want to walk down the street? It was one of our last nights filming. And she said that she wanted to go. Um, and after she did, she said, now I know what my son saw on his last day. She's been aching to have some connection to her son. And this was a closing for her. And it opens up a new chapter in her, you know, I think for her. And I think that as hard as that sounds, she chose to do that, I think, to heal a little bit from her loss. And so in recreating that authenticity, everyone saw the power of it from um, all of the actors and everyone, and also the responsibility. And I think that that had a really enormous kind of odd effect on everyone to say, let's, let's really dig down and authenticate this experience, whether it's the soldier I'm playing 
and who was that person and what's he like. And they reached out and the actors were responded with this incredible kind of like um, response from the families of, of the soldiers they're playing. Or whether that was just living on base and waking up in the morning and walking outside and you're surrounded by two army families. Well, now you know you're immersed into the life that these guys lived in the place where they did it. You're filming for 55 days action sequences in the site where they trained before they deployed. You have a visceral connection. And I think that comes through in, in the filmmaking. So I think what was possibly a difficulty turned into an incredible bonus for us in allowing us to find that connection. Yeah, and figuring out that solution to really make it work on that level. That's incredible. Yeah, sometimes your limitations are, your, are, are, are the most powerful tools uh, because what it forces you to do is kind of reevaluate what you're, what you're doing. And when you do that, you figure out what's important. And, you know, for me, storytelling is all about point of view. And if you can maintain your point of view through the process, and, you know, obviously you have great filmmakers in the center of that process, but if you align yourself with them and maintain that point of view, when you meet these challenges, it actually strips away the chuffa, the additional chaff, and you're left with the seed of the idea, and that makes it through, and that's the power. I was curious about the producer-director collaboration and how important that is, whether it be Seth MacFarlane or working on The Long Road Home, really establishing that relationship of trust, knowing that you know you can execute something and the director will still have their creative vision go forward. I have a vision of, of, of myself as a producer. You know, I, I see this kind of dark, bumpy dirt road in front of us, and I turn on the flashlight and I like the way for the filmmaker so that their point of view can make it down that road. And for me, I get great joy from that. Um, I, I consider myself a storyteller, but I love working with great storytellers, and I've been blessed. I see every one of our filmmaking team, whether that's Miko on The Long Road Home uh, or the directors, uh, Phil Abraham and Mikhail Solomon, both Emmy award-winning directors in their own right, who blended seamlessly these eight hours of television in an incredible way. Whether that's a storyteller like Mike Metaboy, who's been involved in over 300 films, whether that's an, as, a, as an executive or as a uh, producer, um, all of those all of those kind of voices come together. And our job was to look at what Martha wrote and to say, where what's the powerful piece of the story that will connect? What's the humanity of the story that will connect? And distill that and distill that until we get eight hours out of what is a human experience. I mean, we went and screened at Fort Hood for 1,200 soldiers about two weeks ago. And it was the premiere. It was in the gymnasium. It was really, they did a great job. They served these really uh, incredibly bad hot dogs, I remember, <laughs> and bags of chips. And we're, we're, we're sitting in there and, uh, and the lights go down and you feel like you're surrounded by people that were there. And all of a sudden you know, you're naked. You don't have, there is no artifice that's going to let you wiggle out of this. And it plays. And at the end of it playing, you get up and as you're walking out, there's soldiers talking and this guy's, well, why didn't you guys cover my part of it? Because there, th there was a thousand people that were engaged in this battle. And we told the story of this 18 that was pinned down and the hundred or so that came after them. We only have 122 speaking roles in our eight hours. And every one of them was a hero that day. It was a day where un, uh, uncommon valor was common, 
where people displayed the most courageous acts every minute. And so you were surrounded by the guys who had participated, but whose story may not be directly related to the story we told. We had to distill it down to the story, and we amalgamated some of our, our, our characters so that those events happen in a way that the drama is preserved in the storytelling and the point of view is preserved in the storytelling. And I think, you know, I, uh, I'm blessed to get to work with Martha and, and certainly blessed to get to work with Miko, who did a brilliant job of doing just that. And I think everybody is really well represented because of it. So one of the soldiers' uh, mothers was there and who, who his story was not told in this one day of this one battle which raged for 80 more days, by the way. And 160 soldiers were killed during the course of this, and countless others were wounded. This uh, soldier's mother looked at me and said, thank you, because people should know what my son went through. For me, uh, can you ask for anything more if you're a filmmaker than, than someone who just saw you display their story and not tell you you're a fraud or you messed it up or you, you know, you didn't, we didn't fumble it, it feels like. And I, I hope that's the case going forward. Yeah, I think that's vital for everybody to have that perspective to see what military men and women go through. Uh, have you sort of seen that reaction from people watching it, that, that building that bridge of empathy toward understanding what that experience is like to sort of disregard politics in a certain way? I think that's well said. Uh, I think that's exactly our intention, and um, and then you just deal with the human emotion and the human cost. And uh, you know, someone once said to me, someone uh, important in politics said, you know, I just wish that everyone who was voting for us to go to war uh, had a son or daughter that they were voting to go to war because it would make a big difference in their choices. Now I know that's kind of an aggressive statement, but I think what they were trying to say is, don't make these decisions lightly. And the show begins tomorrow, November 7th. Yes, that's at right. Nachia. Yeah. So it's every night at 8 o'clock uh, leading up to... No, it's uh, Tuesday nights Tuesday at night, 9 o'clock, so 8 o'clock Central on National Geographic. It's day and date in 181 countries. We've had incredible response from overseas uh, because, as you know, this was a coalition effort. This wasn't just an American effort in Iraq. So there is uh, a, a lot of people that are very keen uh, to see this and... and um, I think you'll. It's super intense. Uh, the home front scenes are are really amazing. Our cast was brilliant, and uh, and um, it's a big cast. Uh, but you get time to get to know them, and I think uh, you know figure out who these characters were. Yeah, and everybody should definitely check out the uh, behind the scenes featurette, which is now on Nacho on demand, which really takes you inside the making of the entire series. It's really yeah, fascinating. Super fascinating. It's uh, it's it's really it's really well done. The other thing that was great was they did a 360 video of Eric Borkman walking around the set. You know, you asked me earlier about walking through the set and what was that like for people, and the, you know, yeah. and uh, he really explains it well. He was one of the soldiers who was pinned down, and he talks about the experience and what memories came back to him as he walks through the set, and that's in a 360 video experience, which is pretty amazing. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Congratulations on the series. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast. We'll see you next time.